Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat, your hosts, Ollie and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to AWS Tech Chat. It's Dr. Pete here, and as always, I have Olivier Klein with me. Oli, how are you? Hey, Dr. Pete. Uh, very good. How about yourself? I feel special and excellent today. In fact, we've got an action-packed show for you. But before we get into it, um, we're 20 episodes old, Ollie. That's pretty amazing. And as a special gift, our gift to you, our listeners, um, we're actually going to be now available on audible.com. So instead of tuning in with uh, either direct downloads or through SoundCloud, you can now tune in to us via audible.com. And the cool thing is, it's absolutely free. And if that wasn't enough, uh, around the world at the moment, to probably possibly celebrate this for us, is the solar eclipse that's going through in the Northern Hemisphere. Ollie, have you ever experienced one of those things? Oh, I did. Actually, yeah. Uh, just yesterday, my entire Facebook newsfeed was full of my friends in Seattle that posted all kinds of pictures of taking uh, pictures from that solar eclipse. But I did actually experience one myself. Um, as uh, listeners might know, I'm originally from Europe, and there was one full solar eclipse in in Central Europe, if I remember correctly, in August 11 in the year 99. And there were even like music videos made about it. It was uh, uh, quite a big thing. And I remember it very clearly at the time I was in, in Austria. Uh, I like to go to Austria, you know, go to the Alps, uh, hike up some mountains, climb some mountains. And, uh, you know, Austria is one of those countries, every time I mention it in this part of the world, people are like, no, no, you mean Australia? And I'm like, no, Austria, you know, it's that country in Europe. <laughs> There's a bit of confusion. I think everybody likes to claim, you know, the closest Austria or Australia, depending which part of the hemisphere they're actually in. But, you know, speaking of uh, the southern hemisphere of Australia, there will be actually eight more total solar eclipses in Australia over the next 100 years. So uh, the next one's actually scheduled for 2028. Um, and that's going to be, uh, its path's going to be traversing over central Australia and passing directly over Sydney. So there you go, guys. I, I, I bet when you were tuning into the show, you weren't going to be hearing about solar eclipses, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Pete, I wouldn't claim myself an expert in that kind of meta. But uh, one thing that I know about is uh, AWS. And uh, we just recently had our New York Summit, and we Indeed. launched or announced a few new cool services. How about you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I am really, and as you guys know, I'm always super excited about brand new services. And this is about AWS Migration Hub. So AWS Migration Hub provides a single location to track migrations across multiple AWS and partner solutions. So it's a great way of looking at a centralized mechanism for tracking and seeing what's actually going on as you migrate from off cloud into AWS cloud. And the beauty of Migration Hub is that it allows you to uh, get visibility uh, out of directly out of Amazon tools as well as partner migration tools um, to be able to centrally vis visualize what's actually going on. So whether you're using AWS Server Migration Service or SMS or the AWS Database Migration Service, DMS, or partner tools like Cloud Endure or RaceMe, Migration Hub makes it really easy for you to track and get visibility into what's going on with those tools. So things like uh, Cloud Endure is really great for uh, doing cloud migrations of infrastructure from 
on-premises into us, um, as well as RaceMe, which is quite commonly used to do live migrations of, uh, of servers, virtualized infrastructure into AWS. Um, and uh, you can do that across your LAN, your WAN, and uh, get that visibility. So with Migration Hub, um, you get awesome visibility into what is actually going on. Now, as you do your migrations, and it doesn't matter which region you're moving your infrastructure into, uh, all of this stuff goes into the uh, migration hub, which is located in US West in Oregon. Um, so whether you're moving to US East, into Sydney, Singapore, or, or the UK, uh, all that visibility is there for you in a single pane of glass, which is fantastic. Now, there's no charge for the service, but you will actually be charged for the uh, resources that you actually consume, predominantly things like EC2 and EBS. Now, to get started with the Migration Hub, you simply go into the uh, Migration Hub console and follow the very basic uh, you know, guided walkthrough. And what that really breaks down to is phase one really is about um, the actual discovery. So we have um, you know, either a, uh, an agent-based or a agent, agent-less discovery tool, which you can actually deploy to gather and get visibility into all of your, inform- all your infrastructure that's currently out there that you actually want to migrate. And then phase two is about the actual migration itself. And phase three is about getting visibility of what's going on. That's this is really actually really cool because um, the migration hub has an API, and this API gives you the ability uh, to actually get updates and progress of what's going on. In fact, you could actually even build your own tools, Ollie, to be able to um, ingest information as to what's going on as a part of a migration. So by creating a what we're calling a progress update stream. Um, you can then essentially start to submit information about the type of infrastructure that's actually being moved in. So as as you kick off your migration, say, via your systems, via um, server migration tool, um, we will start to collect information. And those tools, whether it's ours or third parties, will actually be submitting things like the IP address, the MAC address, um, uh, the VMware environment IDs, so vCenter IDs, uh, perhaps the VM names or the actual folder path that the VMs are residing in. And what the service will do is actually figure out which of the virtual machines is being ingested which is really cool uh, because it automatically figures out which server is being moved into the cloud. Uh, in fact, you can also do it manually if you really wanted to. But once that's actually being sucked in, you can then get visibility about the actual progress. So doing a, an ingestion of a virtual machine is one thing, but also knowing its actual update is also very important. So that's actually very, very cool. So it's a great service, all that's been added to the portfolio. Uh, and if you happen to be a partner, you can actually um, develop uh, your applications and enable them for the migration hub. So um, if you want to participate in the AWS service delivery program as an APN partner, so the Amazon Partner Network partner, uh, you can actually contact us and we'll give you all the mechanisms and assistance uh, to enable your tools even further. But there's a lot of information out there already in the doco uh, online. So Oli, super excited about the new service, but if that was... The first service, what's the second service? I know you're also very excited about um, a brand new service that's around some Amazon security. So do you want to tell us about Macy? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we uh, introduced a service called Amazon Macy. And I think just what you talked about now, making migrations easier. One other thing that uh, we wanted to make easier is really to allow people to understand their security footprint when it comes to data. So Amazon Macy is a security service that is actually using machine learning models to automatically discover, classify, and then also protect sensitive data that you store in AWS. So what does that mean? It recognizes sensitive data, uh, such as, for example, PII data, personally identifiable information or 
let's say intellectual property, and it will then provide you with a dashboard and alerts that gives you visibility in how your data is being accessed and how your data is being moved. And nice. if that wouldn't be enough, it actually is a fully managed service that then continuously monitors that data access activity for anomalies, right? And again, it's using those machine learning models to actually detect those anomalies, generate detailed alerts when it then detects a risk of an unauthorized access on an inadvertent kind of data leak based on patterns that doesn't seem like it shouldn't have happened in the past. Um, and that's really exciting because it automatically allows you to get a better understanding of what's going on with your data, uh, understand if there are any anomalies and use machine learning models to do so. Um, today now, Amazon Macy is currently available to protect that data stored that you have in Amazon S3. And we will also have some additional AWS data stores uh, coming later this year. Now, if you're interested in Amazon Macy, um, it's actually quite easy. The usual AWS process, uh, you can get started by either way using our AWS Management Console, uh, uh, click on, on AWS Macy, get to the Macy Console, and run the provided CloudFormation templates. Um, these templates are just being used to create the initial IAM roles and policy to give Amazon Macy access to the S3 buckets that you select. So you select which buckets you want to use Amazon Macy on top of it so that you can start classifying, identifying, and protecting your sensitive data. So overall, what it will be doing, it will allow you to get much better visibility into the data that you have using machine learning-based classification, provide visibility and identify that data that have high business value, such as, for example, think programming languages, detect like source code, uh, detect logging formats, uh, understands if there's maybe database backups that you stored in the S3 bucket, then also very important would find out if you, for example, store some credentials or API keys inside files. Uh, it will then analyze and understand the user behavior. So Amazon Macy will look at uh, user behavior of how this data is being accessed. It will understand if there's any uh, suspicious activity. And of course, it's using machine learning models to continuously evaluate that as you keep accessing your data. Uh, it will also automate your workflow. So one thing that's really cool, because Macy is obviously a great tool to get alerted about some potential risk around your data. But you know, very often when we think about you know, certain management practices around how we, um, how we react upon certain events. Uh, there are certain practices and tools that are all we well established and in place. Amazon Macy actually allows you to integrate with that. So it allows you to integrate with security information and event management systems, SIEMs, uh, or also with managed security service providers, MSP, MSSP uh, solutions. So that makes it easy to say, I'm going to use Amazon Macy to understand and classify my data understand where sensitive information, and if there's any issues, actually notify my current workflow. And nice. lastly, Amazon Macy also supports 20 alert categories that help you provide an early warning on security and compliance use cases. And that includes things like high-risk data events, API keys or credentials being stored within source code, which shouldn't be, or unencrypted backups that you might store in your S3 containing credentials, or early stages of an attack, including behaviors indicating, for example, lateral movement of your data, or persistence mechanism, or any kind of backdoor accounts or enumeration of role privileges. So a really great tool to use machine learning to make sure 
that your data is safely stored and secure, and if there's any issue, to merely correct it. Now, having said that, um, Pete, do you want to elaborate a little bit on the pricing of Amazon Macy? Yeah, absolutely, guys. And with with Macy, you're actually charged uh, on the amount of content that's been classified. So um, if you look at the amount of S3 objects that you have, um, so it, so Macy goes through that information um, as well as for Cloud, CloudTrail as well for any anomalies. And the way it actually um, looks is based upon the classification of the content. So as an example, um, once you enable Macy on your S3 buckets, after running those cloud function templates for the IAM policy that you've got, um, Macy will actually go and classify uh, all of the objects that it comes across in your bucket. So it also produces metadata as a part of this uh, to help to create and shape the actual dashboards and reports that you actually get to see. So the content classification engine will process up to the first 20 megabytes of an S3 object. So if you've got very large objects, we only look at the first 20 megabytes. Uh, and for objects that are less than one kilobyte in size, we charge you for a one kilobyte of metadata that we actually create. And we actually store that for, uh, for 30 days at no cost at all. Um, so the first one gig is free. Um, and after that, per gigabyte, you will be paying $5 for the uh, additional classification of content. Um, the other interesting thing is if you do actually want to um, extend the data retention, uh, so go beyond the 30 days, which is at no cost, uh, we'll actually charge you uh, five cents per gigabyte of processed data for um, beyond that you know, 30 days. So it's actually pretty cool. So you can have a very long tail of content. And uh, it's a very important thing because it also looks at CloudTrail events. So Macy also uses CloudTrail events, as Oli just pointed out, uh, to look at any anomalies. Uh, looks at you know how APIs are being accessed, uh, as well as how S3 activities are being you know, um, generated for puts or gets, deletes and lists, um, and also charges and looks at that information in those um, CloudTrail event logs um, for 90 days at no cost. So that's, that's awesome. And uh, so there's no charge for the first 100,000 events, which is awesome. Um, and after the 100,000 events, we'll charge $4 per 1 million events. So it's a, it's a pretty cost-effective uh, solution uh, to better understand the kind of data that you've actually got sitting in your S3 buckets. So yeah, lots of cool stuff, Ollie. And uh, CloudTrail, speaking of which, uh, has also got some extra new features. Exactly. So you talked about CloudTrail event processing, but one other thing that is really cool about CloudTrail, and if you're not familiar with CloudTrail, it allows you to kind of get a real audit trail of what's happening within your AWS account. And previously, that audit trail would actually land in log, log files within your S3 bucket. And what we now also changed is we launched the AWS CloudTrail event history, and we made that available to all our customers. So previously, CloudTrail would create those log files in S3 buckets, but with CloudTrail event history, you can now view, search, and download all your recent AWS account activity within the AWS management console with the SDKs and also the CLIs to enable better governance, compliance, and operational risk auditing of your AWS account. So you can just log in into the CloudTrail, uh, into the AWS management console, go to the CloudTrail console, and now you can start searching for specific events. And you can do that over the past seven days and CloudTrail event history will automatically make those available in your console for you to analyze and understand what's going on within your account. And CloudTrail event history is now available in all AWS public regions, the AWS Cloud Cloud, and also our China region in Beijing. So talking, we talked a little bit about security, Amazon Macy and all these kind of cool things. Um, 
Amazon Macy is using machine learning algorithms. Machine learning algorithms are often used in kind of data analytics pipelines. We have some interesting services around data analytics. And one big thing around data analytics is how we move data back and forth from different processes. There's a great service for that. Pete, do you want to talk a little bit about that? That's right. So introducing AWS Glue, Ollie, and everybody else, um, which is a very simple, effective, and cost-effective way of doing extract, transfer, and loads, or also known as ETL. So, um, uh, so it's now gone. It's globally available, um, and Glue is essentially a fully managed serverless ETL service from us, which takes care of all the heavy lifting of moving large chunks of data from place to place, uh, just like you are probably used to having ETL jobs run inside your database engines um, when they you know, copy, import, migrate, transform, all of those actual activities uh, on your data. So now you can create and run ETL jobs with just a couple of clicks from inside the AWS Management Console. So Glue uh, essentially will look at your data. So we'll collect uh, and assess and build catalogs uh, of your information. So uh, when you think about it, the first thing you need to do is figure out what kind of data sources you've actually got. Uh, so Glue will actually go off and discover your, your data and store those in, in an actual metadata catalog, uh, which has all the table definitions and schemas. Uh, and that's called the AWS Glue data catalog. Now, once you've cataloged everything, uh, your data then becomes immediately searchable. So you can query and see what actually you have available from a data source perspective. Then AWS Glue can generate the code to execute and run your transformations and your data loading processes, which is, the, the uh, I guess, the guts of um, ETL. So the... Uh, the service actually generates Python code, mind you, that is highly customizable, reusable, and it's also highly portable. So that means your ETA, ETL jobs can actually be put into source control if you really wanted to, uh, but also you can schedule these to run at a particular time. So Glue will actually schedule and run these jobs for you. Uh, and these are, again, fully managed, run serverlessly, uh, and scale out uh, on top of uh, our Spark environment that we actually run behind the scenes. So Glue provides a flexible scheduler, with all, which also does dependency resolution, which is one of the key things when you're doing ETLs, as well as job monitoring and alerting, which is also key. Uh, for any of you who've done ETLs in the past, uh, you certainly want to have as much visibility and telemetry into what is going on with your ETL jobs, uh, because uh, if you've been running you know, a long-running job, you certainly want to know how close you are to being complete. So because Glue is serverless, there's no infrastructure to buy. Um, there's nothing to set up or manage. Uh, it's automatically provisions the environment underneath um, the hood uh, to complete and run your jobs. Um, and you only pay for the resources that you actually consume. So um, with Glue, your data is available pretty much instantaneously. As soon as it's been cataloged, it can actually run those jobs. So think of Glue as three main things. It's your data catalog, which holds the repository of all of the metadata uh, sources. It integrates out of the box with Amazon Athena, Amazon EMR, Amazon Red Spectrum. And uh, in terms of the ETL, uh, the engine can also, like I said, generate that awesome Python code for you, which you can modify, install, and uh, centrally control, uh, as well as it's got the flexible scheduler, which is the crux of doing your ETL jobs. At the moment, AWS Glue is available in US East. And what's interesting, Ollie, is uh, the pricing structure, because uh, you know that's a, that's a very different model to what most people actually used to, because it is actually a serverless offering. So what, what does that exactly mean when you say pricing structure? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Um, so because with Glue, you pay uh, for only for what you use and you pay an hourly rate, uh, we actually bill it by the minute. 
So for the crawling jobs, so discovering data, as well as for the ETL job, which is the processing and loading of the data, um, we actually uh, charge those in increments. So with the, um, okay. the catalog, for example, you pay for but, what you use. But mm-hmm. um, Pete, wait, how does that work? You say an hourly rate. I mean, uh, obviously, depending on the, the data that I'm processing, uh, how would that look like for the hourly rate? So it's actually really interesting because, uh, and here's get ready for some technical ch- ch- chatter. Um, you would charge an hourly rate, all right, on the number of data processing units or DPUs. So that's a, a brand new thing we've just created, uh, which basically says this is what is required to run an ETL job, Ollie. Uh, and a single data processing unit, so a DPU, provides four vCPUs and 16 gigabytes of memory. So when you think about it, an ETL job, that glue runs requires a minimum of two DPUs. So that gives you some idea, Ollie, what's actually behind the scenes. So there's actually an instance uh, crunching through of a certain, you know, um, vCPU spec uh, and memory that's been actually allocated to those jobs. So when you actually run them, uh, because it's serverless, we actually charge you uh, in those hourly rates and we charge you in smaller increments, which is which is kind of awesome. Makes sense. Love the service. Really great, uh, you know, that we make it easy for people to move data around uh, more effectively, catalog their data, uh, perform those aut- automatic ETL uh, kind of jobs. And uh, I-, I like, again, I mean, the, the, the idea of this on-demand uh, pay-as-you-go, uh, really great around understanding uh, only paying for the data that you actually process. So these data processing units actually really make sense now. Yeah, and, so, so think know, of it as DPUs. Yeah, yeah, interesting. <laughs> Love it when we came up with new acronyms, right? DPUs. How many DPUs have you consumed with your newest big data job? You know, it's going to be the so next way DPUs? to measure it. <laughs> exactly. How many DPUs have you consumed lately? Exactly. So from DPUs and our brand new services to, you know, the ever-expanding um, scale of our platform. Ollie, do you want to let, let, let our listeners know about what's been happening in the, uh, the world of CloudFront? Absolutely. So one thing that is really important is obviously the regional expansions that we continuously do within AWS. And that includes, of course, our edge locations, where one of the, the major services that we generally run over the edge locations would be, uh, as you mentioned, for example, Amazon CloudFront. So we recently launched new edge locations. We launched a new edge location in Chicago, Illinois, in the US. We launched a new edge location in Frankfurt, in Germany. Um, which brings up Chicago now actually to two edge locations, while Frankfurt actually now has six edge locations. Lots of data going through there. And uh, in addition to that, we also launched a third edge location in Paris in France. And with the addition of all those new edge locations, this now brings up the total number of our Amazon Cloud Front locations to 93. And that includes 82 points of presences and 11 and 11 regional edge cache locations. And if you're a little bit confused about what uh, the difference is between point of presence or regional edge cache locations, um, we actually had a good deep dive on that part in some of our previous shows. So just look out for some of our previous shows not that long ago. We explained a little bit in more detail how that would go. And Absolutely. So we certainly covered those. Yes. So guys, if that was cool, what about Lambda at the edge, Ollie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, talking about edge location, right? So uh, we can obviously use it for CloudFront. We can use it for CDN delivery uh, of content, make that more effective, uh, make that last mile a little bit faster. But one thing that we announced at our last screen that was Lambda at Edge, and Lambda at Edge is now generally available. So So what's the value proposition? 
Yeah, that's a good point. So well, why would we use Lambda at Edge? Why do we run Lambda at the Edge location? Well, there, there are a variety of very compelling use cases for what I would call intelligent processing of HTTP requests that happens close, uh, talking latency-wise, to the end visitor, end customer. So this includes things like inspection or alteration of HTTP headers, uh, think about things like access controls, so requiring certain cookies to be present, uh, things like device detection, right? Or do specific A-B testing at the edge location itself. Do expedited or special handling for crawlers or bots or rewrite user-friendly URLs to accommodate some legacy systems, for example. And many of these use cases require more processing and decision-making than can be expressed by just, you know, the simple pattern matching and rules that we have in the CloudFront behaviors. And with Lambda at Edge, we can now create our custom logic that runs at the Edge location. So what that means is you can use AWS Lambda features to run node.js functions across all those Edge locations globally without provisioning managing service, obviously, because it's AWS Lambda. And that allows you to deliver a much richer and personalized content delivery with of course, low latency to your customer because that processing now happens at the edge. So how does that work? Well, you actually upload your code to AWS Lambda and then you configure it to be triggered by Amazon CloudFront events. So think about things like there's a viewer request or a viewer response coming in or there's an, an origin request on origin response coming in and that will trigger then the AWS Lambda function at the edge location. So when a related request is received by CloudFront, it is routed, of course, to the optimal AWS location close to the viewer with the lowest, um, lowest network latency for the execution of that function. Lambda at the edge will then execute that code, scale it with the volume of requests. So again, just like the normal AWS Lambda function, we will scale to any kind of throughput here. And then the code will then customize your web page accordingly to the extensive logic that you want to put into the at that edge function, which allows you to create you know things like a custom authentication logic that will now execute globally and with as such simplify the delivery of secure custom headers at the edge locations. Um, in addition, you can now also make remote network calls to access resources on the internet or on origin-facing events within the code logic that you're writing into the Lambda at Edge function. So we added that additional functionality and that allows you then to generate dynamic web content from scratch in real time and in line with the requests that are coming in. And generally that allows you to deliver much richer and personalized content with a very low latency at the Edge location for your end user. And Lambda at Edge functions can now be authored in the US East region, but of course will be replicated globally for invocation to all the responses at the CloudFront Edge locations themselves. And now I, we talked a lot about Edge locations now and what we do within the different uh, Edge locations that we have across the world. Uh, how about we talk what's happening within the region? How about we talk a little bit about what's happening within the virtual private cloud, within the VPC, Pete? Yes, yes, I know it's about the edge, and let's move more towards the core, the inner sanctum, the, the VPC. So I'm really pleased to announce that we now have VPC endpoints for DynamoDB. So what this gives you is the ability to have network traffic 
between your uh, you know, EC2 instances within the VPC talking directly into DynamoDB, uh, which means that all the traffic stays within the AWS cloud instead of traversing the public internet. When I want to say public internet, it's just that, that bit between your VPC via internet gateway to the public endpoint, which is still within region, uh, but it was an extra an, an extra hop if you like. So DynamoDB now offers you know uh, more data protection and security using TLS endpoints for encryption in transit. Uh, and the client side encryption library can be used for fine grained access controls into uh, via IAM uh, to provide and store your data, which is really, really cool. So, if you're connecting DynamoDB from a VPC, there are really four main benefits um, that you're going to get out of this. And the first one really is that. Um, while normal charges apply for net gateways, there is no additional cost now for using the actual DynamoDB VPC endpoints. So it's a so it's a cost reduction, which is very cool. Uh, the second one is that the VPC endpoints for DynamoDB uh, no longer need an internet gateway or a net gateway. So this essentially now reduces you know a further reduction in cost. But also now for some customers, say for our banking customers uh, or highly you know regulated um, workloads that need to have very little to no internet connectivity. Now there is no way of possibly traversing out of the VPC onto any part of the public internet, which now means DynamoDB access is within your VPC. So it feels very much like a part of the VPC. So it feels far, far more secure as well. Um, the next thing is um, the endpoints are often much simplified network configuration. So again, it removes the need for any firewalls or any other things uh, that you need to look for uh, in potentially trying to um, block and reduce the attacks vectors that one could possibly expect by you know having your packets traverse out of your um, VPC onto the public internet. Uh, and finally, you can still use the IAM policies to allow uh, DynamoDB access through the VPC endpoints only from your corporate network uh, and only for specific applications, which is actually very cool, which again means that you are not traversing any of the public endpoints. So the good news is that the VPC endpoints for Dynamo are now generally available uh, in all public AWS regions, Ollie, which is actually very, very, very cool. Now, Speaking of VPCs, the other thing that also comes up a lot around things within VPC is EFS. So Oli, what's new with EFS? Yeah, so with Amazon EFS, we now support encryption of data at rest. So if you're not familiar with uh, Amazon EFS, Amazon EFS is actually the Elastic File System. So an Elastic File System that you can attach to your different applications. Um, and one important element that our customers have asked us for is can you make it a little bit easier to actually encrypt that data at rest? And that's what we now launched. So you can now encrypt your data at rest on your Amazon Elastic File System using keys that are managed through our AWS Key Management Service. Sometimes we also just say, in short, AWS KMS. And encryption and decryption is now handled seamlessly. So you don't have to modify your applications to access your data. So it, you just enable it and your data will now be encrypted at rest. Great, right? And then when you create a new file system, you can actually just choose to enable encryption via the AWS Management Console API moving forward. To encrypt your data, you can use then either way the default EFS key that is automatically created in your account or with a key that you actually generated. Now, with that, encryption at rest is available actually at no additional cost, which I think is really cool. Uh, so you just click a, click a button, you now have your data encrypted at rest, and it actually doesn't cost you anything. And it is available, made available in all the regions where Amazon Elastic File System is made available. Now, 
talking about something a little else. We talked a little bit about security and all these things, uh, but uh, you told me something funny when we started compiling this show. You said, let me oh, talk yeah. about Noah Goes R on AWS. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Indeed, Noah Goes R, the um, weather satellite imagery is now on AWS. So Noah is the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, so NOAA. Uh, and it actually operates a constellation of uh, geostationary, um, you know, uh, low Earth satellites for uh, environmental imaging. So the cool thing is, what they actually do is, um, they have these awesome weather satellites uh, circling the planet, monitoring meteorological and environmental um, uh, things on Earth uh, for the protection of life and property across uh, North America. So the geos satellites provide lots of critical information around atmospheric, oceanic, climate, uh, and also space weather, <laughs> to be of interest, um, to basically help forecast things like weather warnings, um, you know, climate events, and doing you know a whole bunch of little uh, life science analytics around uh, what's going on with our planet so these guys have actually been collecting lots of information um, and putting lots of um, spectral images on aws s3 which is actually very very cool ollie okay pete um spectral images um i just tuned it into netflix and there's a new film called spectral is that anyway related to that Actually, a little bit. Uh, so this is actually demystify what spectral images are. Uh, so, and this, by the way, this film I've also seen, and it's uh, it's actually kind of a cool sci-fi because it talks about um, what well, shows you, you know, and kind of an off-worldy sort of a force wrecks havoc across, uh, you know, a war-torn European city. And uh, you know, oddly enough, uh, a chief engineer, you know, a super geek gets brought in to help a, an elite special ops unit to stop it. Um, so this is kind of related. So spectral images, uh, especially from satellites, are quite common these days um, because these are advanced imaging technologies. And in this case, um, uh, the guys here with the, uh, the GO satellites actually use 16, 16 spectral channels of up to one-minute scan frequency to actually collect information uh, of actually what's going on. So to demystify spectral, let me, let me be a bit more clear on that. Uh, so what these guys actually do is when you take a picture, uh, normally you, know, you, you are taking a picture of what you a visible spectrum, right? Well, with spectral images, uh, you're taking special photos that actually take a picture of the electromagnetic spectrum beyond visible light. So the wavelengths are actually outside of human vision. Uh, so in this case, things like infrared, uh, ultraviolet elements can also be brought up. So if you actually want to find out what, what more of what that looks like, there's some really cool things uh, on uh, Wikipedia, which actually shows you some uh, spectral images of the sun. Um, and you can actually see a whole bunch of extra information that the human eye can't pick up. So these awesome satellites uh, are sitting there. Uh, above a planet and uh, taking images um, at one minute frequency and all that information actually goes into our S3 buckets. So the, the GEOS 16 satellites, uh, by the way, this just is, is a bit of a warning. Um, these are still not declared fully operational. They are still considered preliminary and ongoing testing. So the data you're actually getting is, uh, you know, is pretty much a minimum viable product, uh, which shows you what's actually out there. So highly recommend uh, you guys check it out. Uh, and by the way, these guys use S3 in a really interesting way, Ollie, um, because they look at um, different storage classes. Yeah, exactly. As, as our listeners and Pete, as you might know, we have different kind of storage classes with Amazon S3, and obviously uh, they are making use of that. So 
their data, they put it into the Amazon S3 bucket normal default storage class in standard mode, but move it then to infrequent access after 30 days. And then again, after another 30 more days, they move it to Amazon Glacier. And they do that, of course, to optimize a little bit around the cost that they have. So if you have data that you store in, uh, in AWS, think about how you can use the Amazon S3 storage classes together with Amazon Glacier to kind of create that hot, warm, and cold kind of data pattern or data access pattern that you have within your data sets. And, you know, talking, talking about that data set, um, if I remember it correctly, it was provided in a certain format. And, you know, I, I like different kind of file formats. I mean, traditionally, we might just have put certain like kind of CSV file or text file uh, into an S3 bucket. But more and more, I see customers actually adopting certain kind of file formats to optimize the data access pattern onto the S3 bucket. So one thing that I see a lot in the big data world, for example, is the use of a file format called Apache Parquet, which is a columnar storage format that is available or made available in the Hadoop ecosystem. It's free and open source, and it gives you column-oriented data store. Oh, and that allows you then to have a much more efficient way to actually access the data because the data is compressed and encoded with certain schemes to give you a better and enhanced performance to handle complex data in bulk. Now, on that data set that you just mentioned, Pete, that uh, GOES 16, or as I refer to it, GO 16, <laughs> it is provided in the NAT CDF 4 format. What is, uh, what is NAT CDF? Can you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the, the ever-evolving world of uh, big data and lots of new data formats as well. So um, NetCDF is really Network Common Data Format. That's what it stands for. So that form is essentially, again, it's open, it's freely available. There are libraries in C, Fortran even, Java, C++, and many, many other languages uh, as libraries. And the idea behind NetCDF is that these libraries support a machine-independent format um, to really represent that scientific data we were just talking about. And the main kind of attributes of NetCDF is that the data is actually self-describing. So the, the file actually includes information about the data that it actually contains. So it's self-describing, it's portable, which means it goes across different architectures um, there's the standards for storing integers and characters and floats um, you know it's very scalable because you can actually continue to grow the actual data set to be very large and the nice thing about it is you can also keep appending to the file one of the challenges with um, lots of these data formats is that you need to be able to add more data onto the back of that file so uh, this is actually well and truly supports appendability uh, and the other cool thing is that it's also archivable so that means the older form earlier access formats of the uh, netcdf file are also fully supported moving forward so if you do happen to have large chunk of data um, that is in an older format um, the nice thing is the libraries actually provide backwards so I'll to your comments, uh, you know, Go 16 will become uh, Go's uh, 32 and 64 one day. Uh, the data certainly in net CDF format will, uh, will remain accessible. And uh, just for those of you who really want to geek out, um, uh, this actual data is actually sitting in the US East region. So if you want to fire up your CLI tools uh, at the command prompt and type AWS S3 LS, NOAA-GO16, that's actually the bucket name. Um, it'll give you all the files that are actually sitting in there, Oli, which is uh, pretty cool. So you can actually get to that information. And by the way, if you happen to be... Um if you happen to be uh, 
keen to understand when they add more data. Uh, one of the cool best practices that these guys are also following is that they've provided a an SMS topic that you can subscribe to. So as they add more data, uh, an SMS notification can be sent to either your subscribed SQS, your queues, or directly to an AWS Lambda function so that you can become aware of the latest information that's actually been added uh, into the data set, which is a, a really nice smart way of providing a pub-sub notification mechanism uh, for those data subscribers that are actually using open data. Uh, Oli, it's a great way of uh, letting others know there's more stuff to pick up. Absolutely. When Noah goes uh, 16, 17, 18, who knows? I just want to pick it up for my SMS thing. <laughs> but indeed, I think it's a, it's a great way to kind of uh, tap onto some of these open data sets that are available, uh, made available to AWS and with SNS kind of be notified when new data is available for me to process. And uh, talking a little bit about that, so we have the open data sets of AWS, which you find online. Um, and a lot of these open data sets contain interesting information about earth science. And um, if you're an educator, researcher, or a student, you can actually apply for free promotional credits on AWS to take advantage of those public data sets. So if you have a research project that could take advantage of GOES data that is stored on AWS, you can apply for what we call the Earth on AWS cloud credits for research. Now, talking about some of that data um, that we make available, um, what else is new, Pete? Yeah, look, uh, keeping to the weather, <laughs> the UK Met Office is also providing a whole bunch of uh, data sets uh, available to the public as well. Uh, in fact, they've put 80 terabytes of uh, meteorological data on an S3 bucket as well. So, um, you know, they've also made access to uh, tools, documentation, as well as access to a Jupyter, Jupyter notebooks uh, to help people actually interact with this data to get some insights. Nice, nice. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Jupyter Notebook. Really, really cool tool. If you're not familiar, check it out. It's jupyter.org, Jupyter written with a Y in between. And the Jupyter Notebook is an open source web application that allows you to create and share documents that contain live code, equations, visualizations, and explanatory text that you use for data analysis or cleaning or transformation, performing your numerical simulations or statistical modeling. So what you could see the Jupyter Notebook of is, um, you know, think HTML and CSS for interactive computing on the web. And these open standards can be leveraged by any third-party developers to now build customized application with embedded interactive computing to better understand big data. Awesome. So Oli, we've talked a lot about big data at the moment, and we've talked about, you know, uh, things like uh, data lakes. Is there anything you can share with our listeners around what we've just announced around making that job entirely easy as humanly possible? <laughs> Absolutely. So um, we actually have these things or this, this uh, specific things called uh, AWS Quick Starts. And we now launched a new Quick Start that allows you to build an entire data lake foundation on the AWS cloud with Apache Zeppelin, Amazon RDS, and also a few other AWS services. So that quick start helps you to deploy a data lake foundation that then integrates with all these components, helps you migrate your data to the AWS cloud and store, monitor, and analyze that data. Now, if you use that quick start, the deployment will actually use the Amazon 
S3 service as a core service to store the data, obviously. It will then integrate with additional AWS services such as Amazon RDS, Data Pipeline, Redshift, uh, Elasticsearch, Kinesis Firehose, and CloudTrail. It will then also deploy a project called Apache Zeppelin and also Kibana. And that allows you to analyze and visualize the data that you store in that new data lake that has been created in your Amazon S3 bucket. So if you think about that quick start, it allows you to get started quickly for a variety of user scenarios. Think about things like ingestion, storage analytics of some of the structured and unstructured data sets that you have within your AWS environment or your on-premise environment. It allows you to integrate and analyze data from disparate sources. It also allows you to reuse uh, the kind of costs that you have around the analytics pipeline as that data that is captured uh, might grow exponentially. So this kind of data-like um, procedure will allow you to run a, a much more cost-effective around how you do your data uh, analytics. And lastly, thing, um, and this is also important to mention, I think uh, within AWS, we're always agnostic and open to any kind of framework. So uh, even with this new quick step that built that data lake foundation, you still have the ability to leverage multiple analytical engines and processing frameworks on top of that same data that is stored in your data lake now, in your newly created Amazon S3 data lake. So part of the quick start, of course, is always a cloud formation template. It will start that deployment, kick it off, create some customizations and so on. And after the deployment, you can use that data lake provided by the quick start straight away to manage your files in your data repository and start using tools like Kibana and Zeppelin to analyze and explore that data. Awesome. So Ollie, I feel like we've been hijacking the show with lots of big data today. Um, what about our developers? You know, we love developers, and and I hear you're going to be in our neck of the woods down here, down under in Australia, uh, for some upcoming events. What are you coming here for? Because I think the developers really appreciate hearing about that. Absolutely, yeah. So I'll, I'll be coming down to Australia on the first week of September, so very soon now, because we have the AWS Dev Days uh, in Brisbane and Melbourne. And I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the developer's perspective on some of the future trends that we have in development around, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, IoT. And we'll look into, um, you know, what should developers really focus on? And we will have a variety of great other kind of presentations around that are really focused on developers. And speaking of developers, Pete, uh, we had some new services or new changes, new features announcements. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, and uh, again, one of my other favorite services is uh, AWS CodeCommit. Now, CodeCommit uh, can now send um, repository state changes to Amazon CloudWatch events, which is very, very cool. What that means is, so for example, you know, if you were to um, have a, a state change in your repository, like a, a push new code into the repo, uh, then those um, new event types um, can actually be sent via CloudWatch event rules to match the CodeCommit events. And these can be routed to, to, to many, many targets, such as an SNS topic, uh, NRB step function that perhaps manages your state flow work machine, state machine, uh, or perhaps straight to a, a, an AWS Lambda function that can trigger perhaps an automated workflow to continue doing the next step in the process. So uh, you can then process the repository and uh, see what those changes can actually result in. And these can potentially, you know, 
do things like kick off at other activities, uh, admin, admin functions, a whole bunch of cool stuff. So the other thing you can also do with um, code commit is that you can now view, change, and set the user preferences for code commit console. So this enables you uh, to have greater control over what you actually see in the code commit console. So for example, you can select how many repos get displayed in, uh, in the dashboards. Uh, and these preferences are applied across all of the repos, across all of the regions uh, for your particular individual IAM user that you've actually set up for the console, which is very, very cool. Now, if that wasn't enough, um, the other cool thing that's also happened is that uh, you can now get more details around your Git repos. In other words, your code commit repositories have now got tags, and these tags uh, will allow you to now get greater visibility and more detail around which developer, the name, the date time, the commit message, and perhaps a, a link to the, uh, the reference to each tag can now be seen. So this gives you greater auditability and visibility as to uh, what is actually going on in your repos. So from repos, Ollie, uh, and uh, you know, checking in and hooks and uh, activating um, development and, and builds, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening in the local development space, especially around serverless? Yeah, absolutely. Serverless, uh, one of the great topics. I love serverless. It makes, uh, makes our lives a lot easier. I, uh, uh, my primary focus was always being a developer and running infrastructure was always very painful for me. And just that concept of serverless takes a lot of that pain away. Now, you there, has together. Been, <laughs> <laughs> there has been a little bit of one challenge there. You know, I, uh, as I mentioned in the last show, I do fly around a lot and I actually make use of that time in the airplane to play around and build some code. Now, um, a lot of people have asked me, so how do you, how do you do that? You know, how do you build your serverless applications while you're actually up in the air? Well, you know, some airplanes actually have Wi-Fi connectivity, but if you don't have it, we actually introduced something new. We introduced what we call the AWS SAM Local. Um, SAM is the serverless application model, if you haven't heard of it, but SAM Local now is a CLI tool that allows you to build and test your AWS Lambda functions locally on your machines, so to speak, on your laptop. So you can do that, of course, while being offline. So what does that mean? Well, that CLI tool allows you to locally test and also debug that AWS function defined by what we call, obviously, the AWS serverless application model, so those SAM templates. Um, and those today, those SAM templates support local Lambda functions that are written in Node.js, Java, and Python. Now, previously, you were obviously limited to some of the, the toolkits that we have for Eclipse and Visual Studio, um, if you wanted to perform some of this local testing or use some of our some of these third-party frameworks that are out there, there are also some other great third-party frameworks uh, out there that kind of simulate that kind of behavior. But now with the launch of SAM Local, we make it really easy to choose the IDE of your choice. Uh, so for I, for example, I like to use Atom uh, on my MacBook here. Uh, use any IDE of your choice, but then locally test and debug that function using AWS SAM Local. And one other important thing about serverless is that uh, when we have an AWS Lambda function, um, one, of the, uh, one of the use cases is obviously combine it with something like the API gateway and use it as a, as a way to create microservices. Uh, but one other very interesting point about AWS Lambda is always the ability to actually trigger an AWS Lambda function when something happens in your AWS environment. Think like, for example, new log file in my S3 bucket, mm, a new item exactly. in my DynamoDB table, et cetera. So if we want to test those functions locally, 
obviously, we also want to have the ability to develop these kind of functions and test those kind of behaviors locally. So what uh, SAM Local also provides is a payload generator that allows you or enables you to simulate such event triggers for your Lambda functions. And if that wasn't enough, SAM Local also allows you to make local API calls to invoke those functions that are fronted by Amazon API Gateway with a simulated web server that you have running in your machine. And SAM Local actually leverages, and guess what, a Docker Lambda Docker image to run your code in a sandbox that simulates that Lambda execution environment. Now, SAM Local is open sourced, so that's always great if you want to look at the look at the code, change it around, or contribute to it. It is uh, released under the Apache License 2.0, so uh, let you let you know limitation around how you will uh, how you will use that code. So look it up in in our GitHub repository and see how you can now start testing and developing your application functions locally. And talking about deployment. SAM allows us to deploy these functions also easily into our cloud environment, but there are also some other deployment options in AWS. Um, Pete, can you tell me a bit more about what's new with AWS Code Deploy? Yeah, so AWS Code Deploy now supports using application load balances for blue, green, and in-place in-situ deployments, which is very, very cool. So um, what that means is that with this update, you can choose between a classic load balancer or an application load balancer for your deployment groups. So for those that are doing uh, uh, you know, blue-green deployments, which are very common, where you create another environment and then transfer your traffic from one to the other, Code Deployed now reroutes the traffic from instances in the original environment to those in the new replacement environment, which is very, very cool. So instead of you doing that, Code Deploy can do it for you. Um, but also for in-place deployments, um, so basically in-situ deployments, um, using the load balancer with Code Deploy increases the fault tolerance of your applications as it prevents traffic from being routed to the instances that are currently undergoing a deployment. So it actually figures that out and does it for you. So it's a, it's a very nice way of, uh, of helping uh, customers and developers to be able to get the code out there really, really quickly. So, Oli, that's a lot of stuff we've covered in the show so far, and we always seem to be running out of time. But um, what have we covered? Because we've covered a lot of stuff today. Yeah, absolutely. So, always excited to talk about all these new features and functionalities uh, that we launched over the past. So, uh, we really had a, a look today at a variety of the new services that we announced at our New York Summit. Uh, this included things like our Migration Hub, making it really easy to migrate your applications uh, into AWS. We talked about certain security enhancements like Amazon Macy that allows you to use machine learning algorithms to better understand and protect your sensitive data. We talked about things like CloudTrail and made it easy to search and browse those histories that you have there. Uh, we talked about things like the VPC endpoints that we have to make it more secure to access your DynamoDB table and encrypt data at rest on the Elastic file system. Uh, we, and talking about data, we talked a lot about big data or data mm. analytics pipelines. We talked about things like AWS Glue that we now made globally available. Um, we talked about some of the open data sets, like uh, your Noah Goes R data set and uh, what kind of interesting file formats we can use, like NatCDF, for example. And also, if we use open data like uh, uh, Noah Goes R, but also the UK Matt's Office High Resolution Weather Forecast data or other open data sets, how we use SNS to actually tab onto the data notifications to understand what's going on 
uh, if there's new data that come true and then immediately react upon it. Uh, we also talked about some tools like uh, Jupyter Notebook and how to build a data lake on AWS and how we can quickly get started using AWS Quick Start. And we even moved on to the edge locations. So we looked at some of the new edge locations and how Lambda at Edge can be used and how it's now generally available. And we then closed it all up with some of the new developer things that we have available. So code commit that now sends state changes to CloudWatch events and user preference and allows new tagging, uh, tagging uh, possibilities of use that you have. Uh, I talked a little bit about some of the serverless application model improvements that we have around locally testing function, making it really easy to develop and code your serverless applications locally on your laptop. And we closed it all up with code deploy that now allows us to do blue-green deployments and in-place deployments. <laughs> wow, Ollie, that was a heck of a lot. You know, when the summary takes this long, um, and, uh, did you take a breath? Because uh, <laughs> I didn't hear you take a breath. Um, you know, that's that's a hell of a lot of stuff that's uh, that's come out in the last little while. So, guys, listen, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we hope you enjoyed, um, you know, the show. Um, we hope you've enjoyed us here hitting 20 because uh, we'll hopefully catch you in the next episode when, when we're 21. Uh, and don't forget, we're on audible.com now. So go and grab us and listen to us, listen to us there. Guys, see you next show. See you, Ollie. See you next show. Signing off, this is Ollie and Dr. Pete. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com. <laughs>